Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to another episode of Patented, my podcast all about the history of inventions and the history of technology and the history of origins of things brought to you from the fine folk at History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company today. God, I hope I don't get too ranty today. This is one of those, oh, for God's sake types of subject. It's about advertising, particularly online advertising, which makes me crazy from an artistic point of view, one, but also I think makes me crazy from, uh, maybe it's because I just don't really understand how online advertising works. I get really cross when I Google something, I don't know, a plumber, new shoes, whatever, and suddenly you get bombarded by endless adverts for that particular thing, which is why we wanted to do this particular episode. It wasn't my idea, though. You guys have all the power. Today's episode idea, in fact, comes from Joe, who actually got in touch. Listen to this. Hi, Dallas. This is Joe. Love the podcast. Could you do an episode on the development of digital advertising technology or ad tech? When I log into Gmail or Facebook or browse the internet at an anonymous cafe, well, not anymore, but I'm Gen X and I remember internet cafes, all sorts of ads come up in the sidebar that are sometimes very well targeted. Facebook keeps marketing shoes to me. Guys, trust me, I have enough shoes. You can stop. But how did these techniques come about? And who thought them up? You see, we like to listen to you and we like your ideas, so keep them coming. Great question, Joe. Okay, where did online advertising come from? What was the very first one? And, of course, as a creative person, why are they so just bad now? Really, really bad and unwatchable. Trouble is, if you are my age... 30, not 30. You remember when adverts were good or not even good. We had terrible adverts when I was growing up. But the point was, when I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s, we all watched television and we all watched television at the same time. And so if you were watching ITV or later Channel 4, you would watch the same commercials and they were designed for millions and millions of people to be watching the same thing at the same time. And they were crafted really beautifully by amazing musicians and you'd have filmmakers I mean most notably I suppose Ridley Scott the filmmaker began in advertising he did that famous Hovis you know Vorjak New World Symphony bread advert I can understand how advertising worked back then it just has that lingering appeal and that lingering sense of memory it's funny in fact if you name any product that was advertised during the 1980s at me on television I'll probably be able to sing the jingle there's so many I keep seeing them you know if you like a lot of chocolate on your biscuit join our club etc etc anyway nowadays they're not like that something else is something's happened something's going on you know when you're watching YouTube and an advert comes on as soon as you get the opportunity to, to skip you press skip it's how I wonder like I don't understand how they work I don't understand how they generate income to the extent that they would need to be to keep the internet going Anyway, my guest today to discuss all of this and more and to maybe soothe my brain, to maybe make me think a little kinder towards 
online advertising. It's Tim Huang, who's the author of a really terrific book called Subprime Attention Crisis. If that sounds like a, a mouthful, take the word subprime. What does that make you think of? Well, it makes you think of the subprime mortgage crisis that the bubble burst in 2008. And his thesis is there's a kind of parallel between online advertising and that. And it's a really interesting book. Uh, and we do talk about that in, in the chat that is to follow. We also talk about the origins of advertising and, and everything else. So I hope, Joe, you enjoy this. I hope that answers your questions. I hope by the end of it, it changes my mind somewhat. Who knows? Let's see. Anyway, thanks for your company and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the show. I've got my Ladybird book of great inventions. This is from the 1970s. Ah. Not a mention of the internet, not a mention of internet ad technology. Nah, better times. So there you go. <laughs> well, I kind of, I mean, this is what we were just talking about. Maybe it is, mm. when I was a kid, yeah. I can remember every advert jingle from the 1980s. Mm. Do you have one that you recall, like the really stands out to you? Or? All of them. It's really fun. There's okay. a thing, there's a, <laughs> an Instagram account that I follow. It's like mm. someone's basically got all their old VHSs and taken all the ads from It's like it. slowly going through all of them. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, I'm like, I can remember every single one. Like I can remember the tune for, you won't know because you're American. Finger of fire is just enough to give you kids. Anyway, every single (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this particular episode, the reason you're on here is actually a listener got in touch with us who wants to better understand internet ad technology. Sure. Yes. Well, happy to oblige. To me, I looked into a little bit and I don't understand it. Okay. So you're going to have to excuse my ignorance. Question one, has anyone ever clicked on a internet ad in the last 20 years? <laughs> uh, it turns out that some people do, in fact, click on ads, but it is a very vanishingly small number of people, uh, which is one of the most intriguing things about the current web economy. Well, this is it. And I know your book touches on this particular question, and we'll get onto that in a little bit. Let's start at the beginning. I want to set the scene. The internet... You're familiar with it. Mm. There was a time before we had the internet, and now there is a time where we have the internet. How important is advertising on the internet now? Is it the financial engine of the internet? Yeah, so it's actually really fascinating. You divided history just there into BI and, and AI, right? Before internet and after internet. What's really interesting is that there's also a period before advertising on the internet and after advertising on the internet. We forget it now, but there was a period of time when people said the internet has no real business model. And we had no idea that advertising really would be such a core fundamental financial engine for the web. I remember that. I mean, I remember the very first time I went online, I think it was like CompuServe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember any adverts at all. It was just... That's right. It was a subscription was the original model for the web in some ways. Advertising had kind of popped up on the web, but it really wasn't until the invention of something that's known as programmatic advertising, which really Google innovated in the early 2000s, that advertising became such a powerful force on the web and is really ad technology is the the way in which the real big giants of the internet are funded, right? You look at Google, you look at Facebook, they are majority funded through advertising. And this has actually happened later in the internet's history, right? It was something that we kind of like came to for some period after we had this technology called the internet. Well, I remember it must have been some mid 90s. Am I right in thinking it was AT&T had the first Correct. banner ad? That's right. So the first yeah, banner ad, as far as we can tell, right, is this ad that ran in the mid-90s. AT&T was running it on Wired, the Wired magazine's website. 
as the first real kind of banner ad on the web. Now, what's interesting about that, though, is it was very much kind of a traditional sort of ad, right? Like there was an advertising guy that worked with Wired to put up <laughs> yes. the banner. It was almost like a billboard on the Internet, right? And I think that's worth remembering is that, look, you know, this is important historically in retrospect, but when it happened was this totally minor part of AT&T's campaign called You Will. They were really focused on these like very slick TV commercials. If you Google it and go onto YouTube, you can see those AT&T ads and the You Will, as far as I can tell, was basically, here's all the amazing things the internet's going to do for you in the future. Things like sat nav, you know, and all these things that don't quite exist. Video phones, but video phones in phone boxes rather than on cell phones. That's right. And essentially what happened is that AT&T paid Wired to put a banner up on their website. It was kind of this hilarious ad. It was just sort of this pixelated banner with the slogan for the ad, encouraging people to click on the ad. I am looking at that very advert now, and it's basically just a banner. And it says, have you ever clicked your mouse right here? And there's an arrow and it says, you will. That's right. And you clicked on it and at a remarkable rate, right? So the rates of click-through on that banner ad were something around the order of 44%, right? It was almost one in two people clicked on the ad. And was that because it was a novelty because we weren't used to seeing this thing and it said, please click on me. So everyone was like, oh, crap. Okay. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the really fascinating thing is, so if you know anything about advertising stats nowadays, right, that kind of banner ad is lucky to get 0.4%, 0.2% click-through rates. We've seen a hundredfold decline in the effectiveness of these ads really in only a few decades. One view of it is, Dallas, what you're putting forwards is the idea that kind of people have become blind to ads, which is one of the reasons why ad effectiveness may be going down over time. That'll get us into the thesis of your book a bit. I mean, your title, Subprime Attention Crisis, has that link. You can I tell suppose. I'm not the biggest fan of the, <laughs> the, the <laughs> well, I can. System, yeah. <laughs> to, the, to the subprime mortgage crash of 2000. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Although I have to say my mom made fun of me actually when the book came out where she said, you know, people usually use metaphors to simplify, make something more understandable. Well, but you compare, some, compare it to something that's like famously opaque and complex. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I, I don't know if this is going to be beneficial to your listeners, but that's what we've landed on. So. But actually, the point that it is, it's like it's really bloody complicated. Because when I think about advertising of my advanced age, and I've been in loads of ads, I've done lots of advertising back in the sort of 90s. I used to be an actor and I was in loads of ads. It was a bunch of kind of like annoying guys with ponytails and red braces in rooms getting paid too much money. And that's kind of what adverts were. And they'd come up with jingles and ideas and they'd be on TV and you'd watch it. And we'd all watch the same thing because we'd all watch the same TV channels. And so ad, that's kind of what advertising was. It would have a huge reach. Now, you've mentioned this idea of programmatic advertising. So just tell us how advertising has changed from before the internet or very early on to where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. Do people come up with ads or like, how does it work? Yeah, well, when we talk about ads, I think a lot of people still think about, you know, Mad Men, right? Or, or the ponytailed guys you're talking about, right? Like yeah, cool well, guys smoking, not coming cool, up but, with ads. Yeah. But idiot, but yes. Exactly. Yes, that's right. But that really has by and large disappeared. Those people still exist, but they're an increasingly marginal part of our advertising ecosystem. Programmatic ads is really, it looks a little bit more like high frequency trading. It looks a little bit more like the stock market. Effectively, when you go click on a website, there is a split section auction that takes place where algorithms bid for your attention. Wait, hang on Depending on which one pays the most. Hang on. So there's no humans involved, is that right? Well, there's humans involved in terms of setting up the algorithm, determining pricing, figuring out what's going to appear. But the actual decision of which ad is displayed and who pays to get that ad, it's by and large automated by this point. So what do you mean by, what do you mean by auction? So there's a system in the industry that's known as real-time bidding. And the idea of this is, Dallas, you would go to a website and say, 
I'm on the Facebook newsfeed, right? And they're about to deliver you an ad. What happens at that point is that there's a signal that goes out to a marketplace that says, who wants to give an ad to Dallas? And many, many people, businesses, brands, advertising agencies will compete through this marketplace to deliver the ad to you. And it effectively is delivered by auction. Whoever pays the most is effectively the one who gets the right to deliver that ad. So it's like a mini auction going on. Billions of times a day. Every time an ad is delivered. Yeah. It's an incredible engineering feat. We kind of forget about it because it's like infrastructure. It's almost like electricity. Well, that's the thing. It's it, it's totally invisible. And that idea of an auction, of course, I, I immediately think of some guy with a hammer and lots of people waving. waving. Uh, yeah. No, <laughs> it's just a server with a light that blinks and then the ad appears on your newsfeed. So. so this is some code. This is someone that's coded this. Someone's written an algorithm. Yeah, it's by and large software and extremely data-driven is the really where most of the advertising happens today. It's not the guys with ponytails. So no ponytails. Can we put names to these people? Is there like a kind of ground zero? Yeah, or? there are some people who were in involved in the early days of uh, setting up this type of marketplace at, at Google. Um, interestingly, like you, you normally think about Silicon Valley, you think about you know nerds and garages. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people involved were former Wall Street people, uh, economists, right? So Hal Varian, who is an economist at Google for many years, helped to develop a lot of the kind of mechanics of this auction system right. uh, that would later kind of fund big parts of the internet. That's it. I mean, did someone make a decision? Did someone say, okay, we don't have advertising on the internet. I've got a really good idea. We're going to set up this thing called programmatic advertising. And I'm just wondering kind of where the kind of line was crossed or was, yeah, there, was it that first of, banner ad that AT&T had? Or was well, it- I think it was really the invention of a product that Google had called AdWords, which was again, kind of in the mid 2000s. So the way to think about this is you're going to go look for a plumber. So you type in plumber on Google. What happens there is a little bit like we've talked about, there is a bidding process for plumbers to advertise to you when you go for that search term. And so AdWords refers to the infrastructure that facilitates that buying and selling of ads in in search results. You know, it's very interesting. You look at the early days of Google in their investor decks. They say, we're mostly going to make money through licensing our search algorithm. And then maybe we'll make a little bit of money on on advertising on the side. And in fact, the co-founders have a paper that they wrote while they were at Stanford where they said... A search engine should never rely on advertising because the incentives would be simply too perverse, right? But they found out that this business model made huge amounts of money, Willy Wonka waterfalls amount of money. And I think it had a gravitational well that pulled the company increasingly in that direction over time. So I think in some ways, while advertising was experimented with, it wasn't really a predominant business model that people anticipated. It really just proved to have worked so successfully that it kind of exerted a force on the internet as a whole. That's really interesting. So it was a kind of an accident in a way, or, or it wasn't a kind of conscious decision. It just sort of happened as a bit of a byproduct. That's right. It was something that they invested in, but I don't think anyone who was involved understood just how successful it would be, right? That it would turn a company like Google, which was essentially like this academic science project, to one of the most powerful companies in the world. I think that was unanticipated by many of the people who were involved. If it was so successful, and you say the returns on an advert are vanishingly small, like in terms of clicks, where does the wealth come from? Where does the money come from? Why is it so successful if no one's clicking on ads, everyone just skip ads? I mean, so there's a, there's a couple of very interesting things that are playing out in the space. One of them is a classic error, but there's an argument that a lot of the ad industry is confused uh, between sort of correlation and causation. So you have these algorithms that are like, Dallas, he's definitely going to buy this widget. You should send him an ad to buy this widget. And one of the things that some researchers have discovered is that the causal effect of that ad is very unclear. So it actually turns out they're so good at targeting you, Dallas, that you would have bought the product anyways had they not even delivered the ad to you. But what the advertiser sees is, Dallas is going to buy this product. I deliver an ad to him and he buys the product. 
And I think there's a sense that, oh, okay, the ad really worked. But when you actually do randomized control trials, it's actually very unclear whether or not that's the case. Well, that's the thing. And very often, let's say I buy a pair of shoes or I click Mm -hmm. on it and I look at a pair of shoes Mm -hmm. and I like the shoes. And then I go and buy the shoes. For about six months afterwards, I get nothing but adverts for shoes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it's just not that clever. It's like, I bought the damn shoes. Like, why are you still trying to sell me? You should know I've got the shoes. That's the last thing I'm going to buy. That's right. Yeah, my friend has this wonderful story of buying some numbers for the front of his house. And after purchasing it, it was like the algorithm was like, oh, you want more numbers. And so he was advertised brass numbers for his house for months afterwards. That's really funny, actually, because there is something, part of it's really creepy in that it seems to, the internet seems to know what I'm thinking. Why does it know what I'm thinking? And then half of the time it's like, man, the internet's really stupid. It doesn't <laughs> And I think that is like, uh, I mean, a core underlying message of the book and an argument that I'd make to listeners is that we believe a lot of the industry propaganda, if you will, that gets put out by the internet industry, but we should view a lot of those claims with skepticism, right? I think, you know, this is one of the most interesting things coming out of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, if you recall, right, was the story there was a bunch of kind of sketchy political operatives got a bunch of Facebook data and they used psychological targeting to swing the Brexit vote. And then a few years later, you actually have the privacy regulators do a postmortem of that situation. And they say, this was a huge privacy violation. But as far as we can tell, all these claims of you know, high-tech, psychological, data-driven targeting were basically bunk. We don't have any evidence that that really flipped the vote. And I think the same actually plays out in the advertising space as well. Okay, on my podcast now, there are some adverts coming up. Mm. Just tell us, where, where did these, who did someone sit down and say, okay, Dallas has got a podcast and Dallas's audience is this and we, here's a product which we think, or is it just completely automated? Are we going to... Play the app, or should I just? No, I think it'll just be on. It'll just be. Sorry, I know that I didn't have it queued up. No, the ads yeah, is out. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, but yeah. like, I don't know how the ads work on my podcast. They're just ads on. And- no, that's right. Yeah, and so that that's one of the most interesting things about programmatic advertising is that this model, right, real time bidding, auctions, facilitated through algorithms started out in the world of search advertising, right? Things like Google, but is now leaking into everything else, right? So there's an effort to try to make all forms of advertising as programmatic as possible because it's the most streamlined way of delivering ads. It is likely that this podcast has ads that are delivered programmatically, which is to say that there is a human that comes up and writes the copy for the ad and records the ad, but how the ad is delivered, who the ad is delivered to is based on a real-time bidding system, just like display advertising and search advertising. On Dan Snow's History Hit, a mini-series that tells one of the most extraordinary stories in history, the discovery of Tutankhamun. It's a tale of tombs lost beneath shifting desert sands, of adventurers, robbers and nations racing to uncover the greatest prize of all, an intact royal burial. It's extraordinary the kind of exploration he had to do. Pitch blackness, bats flying around, dust in your face, not really knowing what you were going to see next and what would happen next. Snakes, the possibility of ceiling falling down on you. From Egypt, in a dramatic retelling that reveals so much more than the version you learnt at school, we're unravelling the story of one of the greatest dynasties of the ancient world and the discovery that gripped the globe and still does to this day. Download it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. See the face you love light up. With Terry's all gold. That's the kind of ad I want in my podcast. Hmm, yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, listeners. Uh, some people read the book and they said, hey, you're basically trying to argue that there's something uniquely bad about online advertising. And actually, the book is actually making a much more modest claim, which is maybe online advertising is just as bad as all the former versions of advertising, right? We've just like never known whether that's very effective. It's probably never been very effective. And so like, I think like your radio jingle is, if anything, probably much more effective than 90% of ads that actually run because you still remember it years and years later. Well, that's what, that's what I mean. I mean, it's funny because I think about people like, you know, Ridley Scott and these sort of great film directors, they all started off in advertising in the UK. Like advertising in the UK was a real sort of creative industry. And, you know, people took great pride in sort of making these adverts and you get these amazing artists and people sort of making ads and that whole craft is gone. There is something to that, I think. I mean, you know, one argument you could make is back then, even though advertising didn't work, there was a lot less data that it didn't work. Yeah. Which actually allowed all these incredible artists to operate effectively in this <laughs> yeah. ecosystem, even though it was effectively a fraud on the ad buyers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing you could say is, okay, now we have much better data. One result of this, though, is that ads are just kind of squeezed into this commodity state where you can't do anything very art artistic with them. Let's talk about your book, Subprime Attention Crisis. That's a good title for a movie as well, I think. I, I would <laughs> It'd totally make for an watch extremely that. boring movie, but no, I don't think. Well, the whole subprime mortgage thing was the the whole mortgage thing in America and, and the UK completely collapsed. Is that your thesis? Or tell us the thesis of your book. We've just discussed kind of how advertising works online. What's your kind of, what's your thesis? Yeah. So the thesis of the book is that we have decided on a financial model for the internet that runs on this thing that we've been talking about, programmatic advertising. What's interesting is that if you're a tech booster, you say, this stuff really works. We can shape people's minds by, you know, delivering them messages. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has a mind control machine, right? If you're a, a critic, you say, I also agree. Ads really work. Mark Zuckerberg has a mind control machine. That's why he has to be made accountable. And I guess the, the book comes in with a third position, which basically is to say that this is a huge financial engine for the web. But when you actually really look at it, it may be a lot more brittle and less functional than it seems. And that may raise questions about the sustainability of this business model over time and, and all of the things that rest on top of it, right? Things like journalism, things like artificial intelligence research now is largely subsidized through advertising dollars. And so, you know, it is important for us. I think the, the book argues that we should be wary about the sustainability of this market and really be thinking about ways forwards. So the foundations of all of this, the, 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 this kind of world that we've, this bizarre, complex world that we've created for ourselves, the foundations of which, the financial foundations at least, are perhaps built on sand. That's right. And they're, they're shaky, rock. Yeah. And they're, they're shaky in the same way that we had with the subprime mortgage crisis, right? You had yeah. like people, you had an asset that people swore was rock solid that actually turns out to be a lot less valuable and getting less valuable with time. 
you have a group of people who are biased, right? Have financial interest in not recognizing those structural problems. And then finally, you have a market that's extremely opaque, right? The problem with the mortgage market was like, you could not really see that big packages of these mortgages were total garbage. And I think that's also what we have here as well, right? There's, there's some arguments and some studies that suggest that one out of every $3 spent in the online advertising ecosystem is lost to fraud, right? It just doesn't go to anyone. It goes to a bot or someone who's paid to just click on an ad. You think of any other market that operates with that level of fraud, it's, it's hard to imagine that that sort of thing is something functional in the very least that we're okay with or should be okay with. Is this because we've kind of removed humans from the equation and everything now is just purely run by algorithms. So we just don't get to see it. And it's incredibly complicated. And yeah, I think no one, part of it- no one person really understands all the bits. And so- Yeah, that is part of it. I mean, you know, so there's this thing that they talk about often in advertising called brand safety nowadays. The idea of brand safety is really simple. You're Coca-Cola. You really don't want your ad to show up on the internet next to a white supremacist, right? Or, uh, you know, violent content or anything like that. And both the platform, right? Google, YouTube, you name it. And the ad buyers all agree this is something that they don't want to happen. Despite the, the huge amount of money spent on this problem, they can't control it. Because in part, the market is just too big. It's really difficult to figure out why an ad ends up in a particular place and w- why it did in that particular case, right? And so I think that it's an indication that in some ways the market has become unwieldy to the point where even the operators don't have a great sense of how things happen. That's really interesting. So, well, fast forward then. What, you know, when the whole lot comes down, what, what's, <laughs> what, what's going to happen? I mean, because we are so reliant on it. I mean, for everything. I mean, I, you know, I panic about what would happen if the internet collapsed or, you know, the undersea cable got cut and suddenly we were, <laughs> you know, it's like, have we, yeah. have we become too reliant on a system that is going to or could potentially? I think so. I mean, I definitely worry about it. There's a number of ways I see this going. I think one really interesting one is we actually expect in the next few years that privacy regulations will become stronger and stronger. And one of the interesting outcomes of all that is that we may, you know, right now the advertising industry says, don't let us lose access to this data because if you do, ads will just not work anymore. But I have this kind of idea that really the reverse might happen, which is that these laws might go into effect advertisers might lose access to all the data, and then they'll just discover to their horror that ads are just as effective as they always have been. And which really begs into question what all of this data collection has been for. Uh, That's the kind of thing I think could really bring about a crisis in the marketplace, right? Which is like, what have we been spending money on all these years? And I think what it looks like is, you know, ultimately huge turmoil in journalism and media, for sure. Probably in the near term, a lot of consolidation. There are a lot of weaker companies that bigger companies like Google and Facebook would buy, right? And then I, I think really a, a bigger question, I think, about, you know, the accessibility of services, right? You imagine a world where this is really the case. Would you pay a subscription to Google? If so, how much would that be, right? Uh, and you imagine the number of people that would lose access to that kind of service. There's some real equity questions there. If I invented the internet, I'd kind of think, I, I keep thinking of all these things I do. Like I would charge everyone 50p, you know, or a dollar to send an email. And that way I wouldn't get so many emails. <laughs> and actually used, that used to be the case, actually. Early CompuServe, very early CompuServe. Yeah. You, you both paid to send and receive like postage. Yeah, I think it'd be, well, let's bring that back because everyone, <laughs> everyone's inboxes would suddenly be uncluttered and you wouldn't get nonsense emails. It's a terrible idea. I mean, well, yes. I have this idea that like, because everything has been free on the internet for so long, you know, we actually have not had to confront very serious questions about like guaranteeing access to people. If there was a kind of collapse, an attention crisis collapse, would that be a way for people like yourself to sort of come in and sort of rebuild it from scratch and go, okay, the whole thing's collapsed. 
we're going to have to think about better ways of doing stuff. And could could we create a better internet as a result? Is there a is there a happy ending? Yeah, I think there is a happy ending. I mean, my main worry though is if if there is a crash and we really haven't thought about it very much, the likelihood that this whole process just starts again, I think, is very likely, right? And so I do think that if we are trying to build a better web, we kind of have to be talking about it right now. Um, otherwise, these things have a certain path dependence. They have a certain momentum that makes it difficult to kind of change the path. Really, really interesting. Listen, um, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I want and Joanna, thank you for your question. I hope, I hope, crikey, I hope we've answered your question. Like when you were growing up, did you did you have ads that you still remember buzzing around your head from watching TV? Uh, I do. Yeah, I was actually just catching up with my uh, talking with my wife about this, and we remember a lot of kids' toys commercials. From yes. the, the 90s. That's like the <laughs> yes. segment that I have a very strong remember, memory of. There's, yeah. a, there's a kind of bizarre board game called Don't Wake Daddy, where you try to go and steal food from a refrigerator. And there's just this board game whose jingle is just still in my head after 20 years. So See, yeah. jingles work. See, I don't know. That kind of advertising yeah, kind of works. Yeah, let's get jingle. <laughs> well, I don't know, but it sort of brought generations together. People of a certain age will remember certain jingles. No one's going to remember, hey, do you remember that banner ad, that click? ad from 2022. It is interesting to me to see Instagram converging on made-for-TV like aesthetics, like where there's just weird gizmos being sold with no other purpose than to kind of catch your eye. It's great to talk to you. Just put everyone's listeners at ease. Does the internet hate me? Uh, no. Does the internet know what I'm thinking? No. Good. That's all I needed to know. I think that's all. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all, all the audio we're going to use, actually. <laughs> that's exactly. That's it. I hope that answers your question. Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And your book, people can buy it on any algorithmic-based bookshop and yeah. presumably real bookshops as well that you can actually walk into. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Available at better algorithms everywhere. So. Thanks, Tim. Dallas, thank you. Okay, that is it. Thank you for listening. There you go. Advertising. Crikey. I really, really enjoyed that. And don't forget, Tim's book is, is very much worth a read if you, if, you, uh, if you get hold of it. I think you'd really, really enjoy it. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, the algorithms would very much like it if you rated our show and gave it a review and do all the things that I always hate asking. I, I hate begging. I'm not very good at the kind of asking listeners to rate and review things. I always, I always kind of squirm a bit. You know, it helps us out and we'd really, really appreciate it. And I know everyone does the same thing. And that's why I think I hate it, because I know you get bombarded by podcast people and whoever asking you to rate and review in order to keep the algorithms at bay. Don't forget, like Joe, we love hearing from you. Get in touch. Next time, it's Zeppelins, old school, those huge floating cigar tubes in the sky that were once meant to be the future. But like lots of things that were once meant to be the future aren't in the future anymore or didn't turn out to be the present. But I like exploring alternative futures and I know you do too. So I look forward to your company then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive... 
and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.